Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And there's so much news this week. Let's talk about the news. Derek, Ukraine, what's been going on? Uh, well, so since last we spoke, uh, the Russian government has formally annexed the four Ukrainian provinces they were planning to annex. Donetsk, Kherson, Luhansk, and Zaporizhia. Uh, Vladimir Putin had a big blowout bash on Friday at the Kremlin uh, to celebrate the annexation. There was a concert. There were, you know, celebs showed up. The celebs were out. Raz, dua, tri, ra, ra, ra. Was, like, Steven Seagal there? Like, were there any American I don't celebs? Think, no, see, these were Russian. No, these oh, were Russian okay, celebs. Okay. There was a crowd of people who I either were there. I, I don't know. I've heard that they were civil servants who were there because they would have been fired if they hadn't shown up. Uh, but I've also seen uh, people saying it was just a crowd that was in favor of annexation and wanted to come celebrate. Anyway, so they had this big celebration on Friday. Putin gave a very angry speech that was more about uh, sort of complaining about the U.S. and the West uh, than it was about anything to do with uh, the Ukraine war specifically. Um, the, uh, that was followed by earlier this week, uh, the Russian Duma, both houses, uh, voting kind of formally on measures to annex these provinces, uh, which Putin finally signed into law, uh, on Wednesday. Uh, while this has been happening, Derek, actually know- let's pause for two seconds. Okay. okay. What do you think about that speech? Do you, th- because I think... Uh, in in the United States in particular, there's been a ton of discussion about the origins of the war. And do you think it's meaningful that Putin focused so much of that speech on the United States? I don't know what to me. I mean, I don't know what to say is meaningful and what isn't at this point. I mean, he's uh, clearly angry. He's angry that the war hasn't gone as easily as I, I assume angry that the war hasn't gone as easily as he thought it would. Uh, he's angry that the West has gone to some lengths to stand up the Ukrainian military in the way that it has. He's obviously got some long-term resentments. And, and again, you know, this is where you get into trouble if you say he's got kind of a point, but he has some long-term resentments about the way the West treated Russia uh, at the end of the Cold War through the 90s, which I think if you divorce it from the war, you have to say is, is again, he, he does kind of have a point. Russia got the the shaft for quite a bit of time. And, you know, I, I think he's also playing to a, a domestic audience that is now because of the losses that the Russian military has suffered, which have been impossible for the, the, uh, the Russians to cover up um, in the media or on social media. And because of this partial mobilization that he's announced, which has woken people up, I think, uh, to some degree, to the fact that there is a war going on and it isn't going particularly well. He's got a public to play to now that he maybe didn't have to worry so much about prior to all of that. And, and the easiest path for him to appeal to the public 
writ large in Russia, uh, is to make this about the West. It's to make it a war of the West attacking Russia in a sense. So Russia is on the defensive. Russia is the victim. And, and to leave the, the part about invading Ukraine kind of out of it because it doesn't really fit the narrative very well and it's unclear uh, how popular that particular piece of it uh, actually is. So I think there's a lot of stuff going on here. I don't know that you can, um, I don't know that I would draw any big geopolitical significance from it. I think it's more uh, kind of an immediate response to the situation, both in terms of his emotional state and in terms of, of what he thinks he needs to, to do uh, for domestic reasons. Okay, thanks. Sorry. Uh, sorry to interrupt. No, that's okay. I was just going to say that while this has all been going on, the process of kind of formally legalizing the annexation, Russia has been losing territory uh, kind of across the board. Uh, there, were, there are uh, there's word that the Ukrainians have advanced almost to the border of uh, Luhansk Oblast, uh, so they've taken you know sort of the rest of Kharkiv. Uh, they took uh, a city called Lehman or, or a town called Lehman or, uh, uh, in Donetsk province over, I think, the weekend, uh, which is another one of these kind of strategic uh, hubs that, you know, for logistical reasons is, is relevant to the, uh, the Russian position in eastern Ukraine. And then over the last couple of days, there have been indications of finally, after, you know, uh, weeks of uh, really not getting anywhere, the Ukrainians actually making some progress in Kherson. Um, now, this comes piecemeal. You get claims from the Ukrainians that can't be verified, but there do seem to be indications on the part of Russian officials, the Russian government or Russian appointed government in Kherson has admitted some losses. Uh, there's indications from the Russian defense ministry that they've kind of tacitly admitted some losses. You know, not nothing huge yet. The Russians seem to have fallen back in, in pretty good order to a a position around Kherson City, which is probably more defensible than the uh, the line they were trying to defend previously. Um, so it's not like Kharkiv; it's not a, a total rout or anything like that. But they they do seem to have given up um, uh, a fair amount of territory in that uh, on that front. So, what do you make of all this nuclear talk? Is it just a, a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing, or is it you know maybe that's true? But if there's a one percent chance, it's not. Well, that's, I mean, that's the thing. I, I think that you, you have to treat any uh, possibility, even if it's a fairly remote possibility, that there could be uh, nuclear use here. A tactical nuke probably would be the, uh, the way they would go, I guess. Um, you have to treat that as uh, fairly serious. Um, now, I, the talk this week has been about some scenarios that I seem fairly far-fetched to me. Uh, there was a UK report that the Russians had moved a, a nuclear testing unit or some, some kind of nuclear uh, material right up close to the border and that they were going to do a test, a, a nuclear test, like right on the, just on the Russian side of the Ukrainian border. I, I, I don't, I think that's pretty absurd. I don't know what you would gain by uh, nuking your own territory in this situation. That seems to be a bit much, even as a show of force. Uh, I don't see that happening. And I, there have been uh, a couple of people, a couple of nuclear experts on on Twitter who have kind of poo-pooed that report. So I don't think that's anything to worry about. There was another report about this submarine, the Belgorod, that uh, supposedly has the uh, is is equipped to fire off an underwater drone that can carry a nuclear warhead and create 
what the Russians, I gather, have have said would be a nuclear, like an irradiated tidal wave uh, that they could set off. You know, they could set this off in a uh, uh, offshore from a coastal city and and just irradiate the city with uh, uh, irradiated ocean water. I, I that that's I, I'm not a nuclear scientist, but that seems like science fiction to me. Um, so you know, I, I I think there's a possibility of of something. Um, I would, they would probably, I mean, my guess is they would probably do a test somewhere, maybe in the Arctic somewhere, um, you know, someplace unpopulated that's not anywhere near uh, actual Russian territory uh, as a show of force and then might move to a, a, a posture where they're ready to use a tactical nuke. I, I, I think you have to take it seriously, but I don't know um, what the response should be. I mean, do you, do you pack it in at that point? Do you... Um, you know, there have been threats to attack uh, the Russian units that use nukes, um, you know, from, you know, by NATO directly, which would obviously escalate the war. That's uh, not particularly desirable. So I don't know. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a tough needle to try to thread where you're, you're in this game theory kind of scenario that, that, that people have been talking about for several years now, the notion that you can use nukes in a conflict without having it escalate to World War III, which... Uh, I always find fairly dubious, but, um, you know, I'm not an expert on this. What does the annexations mean for the course of the war? Uh, do, do they heighten tensions? I imagine that they do. Could you maybe just talk about that for a second before we move on? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of tied into the the new question in a sense. The annexation, what the annexations do, they don't really change anything on the ground. And obviously, um, you know, the Russians have lost territory that they annexed uh, over the last uh, several days. So, um, you know, there's nothing about the, the situation in Ukraine that, that physically changes. But what it does um, is it gives the Russian military legal justification if they want to bring out nukes, if they want to go to full mobilization, they can now claim, as, as absurd as this would be, they can claim that they're defending Russian territory that's under Ukrainian attack and, and under the you know their military doctrine uh, that would open up a wider range of potential responses and more serious responses. You know, again, in terms of what it actually means on the ground, it, it only means something if the Russians decide to invoke that sort of claim and and act accordingly. So let's stick with nuclear missiles and talk about North Korea. Uh, yes. So North Korea has had a very busy couple of weeks. Uh, they have conducted, I think at last count, no fewer than six, uh, missile tests or, um, weapons tests of some kind or weapons launches. I don't even know if test is the right word because they're, uh, they're not really testing. They're doing, you know, kind of displays of force at this point, um, over 12 days. Uh, so they've done a number of these things, uh, most provocatively, uh, on Tuesday morning, they fired off uh, a missile. It's still not clear what type of missile it was. They fired it over Japan. So it flew over northern Japan, caused the Japanese government to uh, issue warnings for people to take shelter or suspend train service uh, in the northern part of the country. In response, the U.S., South Korea, and Japan scrambling fighter jets. South Korea and the U.S. running bombing drills to demonstrate their combined ability to retaliate. So very provocative. North Korea hasn't has done has done this before, but it's been several years since they've done anything like this, quite this provocative. Uh, that test was the longest uh, range test that the North Koreans have ever undertaken. Uh, the South Korean military says they were testing an intermediate range ballistic missile. It's conceivable they were testing an intercontinental ballistic missile. We don't uh, know 
uh, for a fact that, that it was one or the other. Uh, normally what they do is they fire these things, you know, straight up in the air, basically. So they go, you know, uh, they, they cover their distance um, vertically rather than horizontally. And, but, it, you know, you do get uh, a different kind of information firing them in, in, you know, horizontally, which is more how you would actually use them uh, in a conflict. So um, there is some, you know, there was some data they probably got from this, but I think the point was to be provocative, and that's what they've been doing uh, for the past couple of weeks. Now, in terms of why uh, they're doing this, why this flurry of activity there have been several things happening over the past couple of weeks that I think the, the North Koreans are responding to. Uh, Kamala Harris visited South Korea last week as part of a little trip to Asia. Friend of the pod. Uh, friend of the pod, Kamala Harris. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think they were, you know, you know welcoming her to the region, uh, as it were. Uh, the U.S. and South Korean militaries are undertaking major uh, exercises. Really, for the first time in a couple of years, COVID intervened and uh, the sort of bromance between Kim Jong-un and, and Donald Trump intervened as well. Uh, so the, ask, uh, these exercises between the U.S. and, and South Korean militaries have, have picked back up to, uh, let's say, pre-Trump levels, uh, and, and the North Koreans are responding to that as well. They, they also were angry yesterday's, uh, there was a launch on, uh, well, actually not yesterday, it was today, uh, local time, uh, this morning. Um, they seem to have been angry about the United States bringing up these tests in a UN Security Council meeting. Um, the UN, uh, the U.S. also deployed the Ronald Reagan aircraft carrier group to South Korea in response to the previous launches. So they may have been, you know, it's kind of a back and forth responding to that. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff going on that I think the North Koreans are trying to make statements about. What's still to come potentially and something that people have been talking about for months really now uh, is the possibility of another nuclear test. Um, there are indications that the North Koreans have been preparing, they've been rebuilding uh, facilities that they kind of tore down again at the height of the Kim Trump back and forth uh, as a good faith gesture. They're now rebuilding those facilities. There's activity in those facilities. So uh, it seems like they may be preparing for a nuclear test and just waiting for the most auspicious moment to undertake it. Uh, that test could involve just, you know, generally kind of, you know, the largest uh, explosion they can get, but it's more likely going to involve, I think, uh, a lower yield device. So like a tactical nuke, if you will, uh, which is something the North Koreans have been working on uh, allegedly, uh, but haven't actually developed yet. That, that could be a big deal because you can put, tactical warheads on, you know, kind of dummy artillery on short range missiles that, that, that ups the ante as far as South Korea, uh, is concerned. Uh, speaking of South Korea, actually, I should mention, uh, after the really provocative test, the one that flew over Japan, uh, the South Korean and U S militaries attempted to retaliate by carrying out their own missile launches, uh, on Tuesday, one of the South Korean missiles failed uh, and landed in the city of Ganung. I, I don't want to, I'm, I'm probably butchering that. I apologize, but uh, came down on the grounds of a military base in that city and sent the population of the city into a panic, fear, fearing that they were under North Korean attack. So it might be better for the U.S. and uh, South Korea to just kind of let it, let it roll off their backs instead of trying to retaliate because they don't seem to be having much luck with it. Let's move on uh, to Yemen and the expiration of the ceasefire. So uh, as people 
presumably know Yemen has been under a ceasefire since April. Uh, it was a two-month ceasefire initially. It's been twice extended. Uh, the deadline to extend it again expired on Sunday without an extension. The parties are blaming each other, as, as always happens in a situation like this. Uh, the Houthis are criticizing the Saudis for not doing enough to alleviate the humanitarian crisis in northern Yemen. The Houthis themselves, or the rebels themselves, never really implemented their obligation to uh, ease the siege of the, their siege of the city of Taiz. And there's also there was also a mechanism in that April ceasefire or, or a kind of condition that the, the two parties, the the warring parties, were supposed to get together and figure out a way to pay public sector salaries, which haven't been you know getting paid. Obviously, the country's at war. It's not really. Uh, the economy isn't really functional at this point, but they were supposed to develop or, or, or come up with a way to start paying out those salaries again. The good news here is there hasn't been any fighting uh, of any uh, size or any any clashes of any size to report, uh, which means there is still a window uh, to kind of retroactively, let's say, uh, renew this ceasefire. And negotiations are still supposedly ongoing. The UN says it's trying to negotiate uh, a basically longer and stronger ceasefire, um, something that would run for six months, not two with the option of renewal, but rather just six in a chunk, uh, that would take more steps to, to try and solve this government salary issue. Uh, you know, I, me personally, I would be working on just kind of getting a, a general uh, renewal of the previous ceasefire. You don't have much basis, it seems to me, for uh, negotiating a bigger and better ceasefire at this point. Um, the foreign minister of the Yemeni government, such as it is Ahmed bin Mubarak, uh, told reporters on Wednesday in Morocco that the government is determined, this is a quote, determined to renew the ceasefire. Um, you know, that could that's probably just rhetoric, but it puts the onus, of course, on the rebels, on the Houthis. Um, according to the U.S. envoy for Yemen, Tim Lenderking, uh, the rebels were demanding... Um, priority for their own fighters and their own kind of employees under this government salary scheme or whatever it was going to look like. Uh, and that's the reason the talks broke down. So he's sort of, you know, blaming the rebels and, and suggesting that they should uh, show more flexibility. I, I should say here, I always find it fascinating when the United States, which has been party to this conflict and been arming the Saudis and, and supporting the Saudi war effort for uh, since the beginning, uh, thinks that it can offer advice to the the rebels and that they're going to take they're going to listen to that in good faith and think that the United States has their best interests at heart. There's no credibility uh, for the United States to be involved here as a mediator in any way. And, and you know, uh, I think it just makes things worse when we try to pretend that there is. Let's move on to OPEC and the oil cuts. Yes, um, this was uh, this happened just uh, Wednesday. OPEC plus. Uh, members held their monthly meeting where they discuss, uh, you know, what to do about global oil production for the coming months. Uh, they cut the last one of these meetings in September. They cut. Uh, they had been raising, kind of very gradually raising global production caps for several months as the the world was coming out of the uh, out of COVID lockdowns. There was an attempt to kind of manage demand without causing prices, which have been quite high to the, the benefit of the, the member states, uh, without causing them to crash by, you know, kind of flooding the market with new supply. Um, over the last couple of months, as prices have uh, 
subsided a bit. They've come down from, let's say, 100 or $110 a barrel down into like 90 85 that range. Um, the OPEC Plus members have been talking about cuts. And in September, they actually made their September meeting, they made a small cut of about 100,000 barrels per day uh, to try and boost prices again. Uh, it didn't work. Prices are still kind of in that $80 uh, let's say $85 to $90 a barrel range. Uh, so on Wednesday, uh, they announced a real whopper of a cut, 2 million barrels per day starting in November. Um, you know, Much higher than anybody had expected. Uh, this drew a, a, a fairly sharp, uh, angry response from the Biden administration, which would prefer low oil prices and cheap gasoline going into the November midterms. Uh, they characterized the decision as short-sighted. They accused the bloc of aligning with Russia, which seems like an odd thing to say when the bloc actually includes Russia. Like, do you not expect them to align with their own member states? But I digress. I'm not sure how much of a practical effect this cut is going to have. Uh, OPEC plus regularly, you know, these caps are theoretical. They're not uh, not necessarily real world. And, and as a collective, uh, OPEC plus regularly falls short of those production caps. A lot of member states, um, you know, like Iraq, for example, let's say, have have real problems with their oil infrastructure. Uh, they don't have the, they haven't invested in it. They haven't been able to invest in it. It's decaying, so they can't meet their quotas. So there, there are shortfalls pretty much every month. So this two million barrel cut comes off of the theoretical top line numbers. So there will be some reduction in actual global oil production, but it's not going to be to the tune of 2 million barrels per day because OPEC Plus wasn't getting there to begin with. Uh, so it remains to be seen just how big an impact this is going to have on global oil, oil supplies. Prices, to my knowledge, I haven't checked them today, actually, but yesterday when the announcement was made, they kind of inched up some. They got into the low 90s. Uh, yeah, that seems to be where they're at now in the kind of the 90 to $95 range. So uh, they didn't spike, I think, as, as much as maybe uh, OPEC Plus members might have hoped uh, or intended, uh, but they did. They did go up a bit. Okay, uh, let's talk about Burkina Faso. So on Friday, this would have been, um, you know, after we talked last week, uh, there were reports all day of kind of suspicious gunfire, military movements uh, in the capital of Burkina Faso, Ouagadougou. It turned out by the end of the day that this had been, as you probably have already figured out, a coup led by a captain uh, in the Burkina Bay military, Ibrahim Traore. This is the second coup uh, that Burkina Faso has uh, had this year. There was another one in January. And so that junta government that emerged from the January coup has itself now been overthrown uh, in another coup. Uh, the leader of the previous junta government, Paul-Henri Demiba, uh, re resigned over the weekend uh, and fled the country to Togo. Uh, there had been some indications like Saturday, uh, you know, kind of uh, that things might devolve into a, a, a war between his supporters and the supporters of the new junta. But uh, he forestalled that by resigning and leaving the country. Um, he he uh, articulated apparently a number of conditions uh, before leaving the country, one of which was that the new junta not interfere with the previously uh, determined deadline for holding new elections and restoring civilian governance, which the, the previous winter had set uh, for July 2024. 
the speculation all week has been, you know, or the questions all week have been, you know, would they stick to this deadline? Would they not? The economic community of West African states, which negotiated that deadline with Demiba's government, uh, sent representatives to uh, Burkina Faso on Tuesday. They came away uh, apparently satisfied with what they heard. Uh, and Traore issued a statement on Wednesday, again, kind of pledging to stick to this July 2024 deadline. So in a uh, in an overarching sense, this coup doesn't necessarily change anything about the trajectory uh, that Burkina Faso is on. We'll have to wait and see what it does at the more kind of day-to-day nitty-gritty level. This demonstrator says he hopes the new junta in power will follow the example of neighboring Mali, where the Russian security company Wagner has been brought in to fight armed groups. We should say that, I mean, the, the cause here seems to have been uh, Damiba's utter failure to do anything about the jihadist violence problem in Burkina Faso. I mean, he came to power, overthrew the civilian government in January on the basis of security um, you know, arguing that they ha- they had failed to deal with the jihadist problem. He himself and his government uh, have done nothing to improve the situation. Uh, just a few weeks ago, he fired, uh, a couple of weeks ago, he fired his defense minister and uh, took over that job himself in an effort to try and kind of uh, change the the narrative a bit. But it, it seems clear that, that that's uh, the root of the cause. There, there were factions in the army, and I think it's indicative that this was a... Um, uh, a captain's level coup, because I think the what, what you're seeing is units that were actually in the field trying to to battle, um, you know, Islamic State, trying to battle Al Qaeda, uh, angry over the fact that they're not getting supplies, they're not getting ammunition, they're not getting what they need to carry out that fight, and they took matters into their own hands. Uh, there is, there has been some speculation that this new faction favors uh, working with Russia and the Wa- Wagner Group as as uh, uh, the Malian junta has done kind of uh, breaking off ties with France and, and going in a different direction. Um, I, I haven't, I should say, I haven't seen any indication that they're they're doing that yet. But it's of course only been uh, a week, so who knows? So let's end on a quick update on the Brazilian election. And so for people who might not know, we did a special earlier in the week where we get very deep into it. So uh, check that out if you haven't. But Derek, what else is there to say? So, yeah, just the, I mean, the top line here, if people didn't listen to the special, is that uh, uh, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva finished, former president of Brazil, finished first in the first round on Sunday, uh, but not by the margins that polling had had indicated. Jair Bolsonaro, the incumbent, uh, came in second with a much stronger showing than a lot of polls uh, had suggested. The uh, second round of the election, which will take place, I believe, on October 30th, uh, I would say Lula is probably still favored, should be still favored uh, to win that second round. Um, but, you know, uh, Bolsonaro is in a much stronger position than one might have uh, thought uh, prior to the first round of the election. Uh, the update the, to mention here is that Lula did pick up a couple of potentially significant endorsements on Wednesday. Uh, the third place finisher in Sunday's first round, Simone Tibet, uh, announced her support for Lula. Uh, also, a former Brazilian president, Fernando Henrique Cardoso, uh, announced his support for Lula. Both of them are in the kind of center, center right uh, chunk of Brazilian politics, which is probably, you know, w- well, certainly where Lula is going to look to find the remaining votes that he needs to defeat Bolsonaro. I, I don't know if that. Politically is the wisest thing to do. It may not be, but that's certainly the direction that he seems to be 
uh, intending to go. So these endorsements on that front are uh, are significant. Ciro Gomez, the the fourth place finisher uh, in Sunday's election, who is sort of a center left candidate, former uh, member of Lula's Workers Party, who broke away and has kind of migrated to the center. Uh, he's not endorsing anybody. He said he supports his party's decision to endorse Lula, but didn't make one himself. Uh, they have some personal beef, I gather, so he probably uh, uh, is kind of working out some issues there. Uh, Bolsonaro picked up a couple of endorsements, another former president, Michel Temer, uh, and the uh, state governor of Minas Gerais, uh, Governor uh, Romeo Zema. Both of them announced endorsements for Bolsonaro. Uh, those could be significant as well. Timer is very unpopular, so he's probably less uh, significant. But the the state governors, if you get some uh, some of these state governors to back, uh, give him a boost heading into the the runoff. Thank you, Derek. The news was there, and you conquered it. Everyone, thank you for <laughs> listening to American Prestige, and we'll see you all soon. Bye, bye. bye.